To quote Samuel Beckett, what is that unforgettable intro line? In honor of Birdman, what's your favorite movie about the theater? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going to stand up for Shakespeare and love here because I know something of a woman in a man's profession. Yes, by God, I do know about that. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm going to choose the um, unappreciated gem being Julia uh, with an amazing performance by Annette Benning. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Noises Off, the Peter Bogdanovich film from the early 90s that was adapted from a crazy screwball play from the 80s, and it's not very good, but Carol Burnett makes me laugh. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. And not just because the cover of the Criterion release uh, looks the same if you flip it upside down. That is the best reason you've ever had for picking a lightning round answer. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 44 for Tuesday, October 14th, 2014. It's already October. That's crazy. Uh, we have some reviews to share with you. David is going to try and limit himself. You guys have been great about sharing reviews. David, what's a couple of good ones for right now? Oh, my God. I just remembered during your intro, this is my last episode of the podcast in my 20s oh shut up matt patch is gonna be uh in his 20s for another six years that, that i have my bar mitzvah soon. <laughs> that does not make me feel any better <laughs> um anyway as katie said you guys have been terrific thank you so much for, for writing uh so many reviews on our page and the first one chronologically is so great uh, that really, you owe it to yourselves, if you're listening to this podcast, to go onto our iTunes page and read it for yourself. It's called Savants Drawing in the Sand. <laughs> um, and I I would really fail to do it justice if I read it, even in, in, in little bits and pieces. So go on our page and check it out. Uh, there are a couple of very long ones. But uh, let's, let's read one uh, from Jai Mark, who says, Smart, cynical, funny. Love it, guys. I'll admit I really only read what David Ehrlich and Patch is writing for shame but all five of you i think we just include joanna at this point have a diverse range of opinions and backgrounds when it comes to films which keeps the discussions lively and enlightening keep up the good work and check katie's microphone because half the time i can't hear her and then ah! the next sentence will almost burst the speakers in my car love it guys keep up the good work uh, maybe you're just getting old dude i would happily read one of the less flattering ones but uh they they are quite long uh and uh, very amusingly written as i said about well, the other well one. written so, i would say so uh, go on our itunes page they're good reads. and uh we will either read a review leave us on the next show or allude to its greatness so that other people can see it for themselves <laughs> tonight do we still call it that segment one yeah. tidbit uh, yeah tidbit. we are going out. to be talking about the only documentary that anybody can be talking about these days uh that's not true but certainly the one that arrived with the biggest splash and the most panache is uh laura poitras's citizen four 
which debuted at the New York Film Festival uh, after being made in quasi-secrecy. People knew that Laura Poitras was involved in the story that we'll uh, be cluing you into in a moment, but it was unclear or sort of largely unknown to the public that she was working on this documentary until it was announced to play at NIF. Um, Laura Poitras uh, has made, this is the third film in a trilogy about sort of America and, and Americans, America's operations following 9-11 and uh, following My Country, My Country and The Oath. And when Edward Snowden, who, which is a name that I suspect is familiar to most people out there by this point, uh, was preparing to leak the information that he obtained while working as an NSA contractor, he was very involved in how this information was going to be disseminated, how the story was going to be broken. And he strategically tried to contact Len Greenwald and then later Laura Poitras, who was a filmmaker who was already on uh, a, wa a government watch list for her activities in making these films after 9-11 and was somebody that he trusted. And over uh, a few months of encrypted emails, he, without revealing his identity, he convinced her that he had valuable information that he wanted her to help him share. And she agreed to meet him along with Glenn Greenwald in a hotel room in Hong Kong where he revealed his identity and made it very clear that he wanted, uh, without having himself become part of the story necessarily, he wanted to paint a target on his back and reveal his identity so that the other people in his life, including his parents and his longtime girlfriend, would not be subjected to uh, sort of harassment by, by the government and, and accused of being involved in this. But So they, they leaked all these documents, as uh, I'm sure anyone... Uh, listening to this podcast remembers very well. This was in June of 2013. But Laura Poitras, what makes this documentary so incredible, is not that it relates information you already know, but that she's in the hotel room over the eight days that they are so, uh, breaking the story piece by piece. It is an impossibly uh, intimate, firsthand, primal uh, account of what happened. Um, and it, it's really electrifying how she is able to tell the story with which she's implicitly part of her movies are their verite documentaries she couldn't be more further removed from from michael moore in that approach and that she does her best to keep herself outside of the story uh there was only a limit to the degree that she could do that with this story but still is able to have a certain remove even though her freedom her liberties her ability to travel freely she now lives in berlin she can't go to the united states without being detained for several hours um she has become almost if not quite as paranoid about uh, people listening in as edward snowden has uh but she is able to tell the story in a way that feels like a uh jean le carré novel or something like that i mean it has the urgency of a the finest spy fiction but it is uh, unfortunately, as real as can be, and paints a very, very interesting portrait of Edward Snowden. And uh, and very interestingly, and something that I've never seen before, was people were aware that there was a new revelation, a bit of a bombshell in the last scene of the movie. And there were journalists at the screenings on Friday night who were there not to really review the movie, but there to break news, there to report on what was learned, uh, which, you know, in long-form documentary filmmaking is, is not something in my lifetime I can ever remember happening. Uh, this movie received the most rapturous ovation I've ever seen in the history of the New York Film Festival that I've been attending. And, and uh, people who run the festival have, have echoed that sentiment. Um, 
you know, you're always supposed to be wary of festival reactions uh, and, and ovations. If Clerks 2 taught us anything, it can. But uh, <laughs> this movie is really something, and it's it's incredible that it even exists in the first place. And in addition to that, that it's assembled so well. Uh, and Patches, you saw it as well, did you not? I did. I saw it at a less rapturous uh, environment, mostly because it was press people on a Friday night, uh, far removed from the, like... You know, I wasn't sitting behind Edward Snowden's parents. Uh, like yeah, you were, well, David, <laughs> that's uh, that's a story that you know. I you wasn't just, there to embarrass myself in front of the people who completely this ruined the uh, the punchline. The Warner Brothers of my story. Room. Sorry which, about that. Which is that I, during the last twenty minutes of the movie, the people in front of me were talking a little bit more than I would have liked, and I was strongly thinking about shushing them. But I'm not really much of a <laughs> shusher in theaters, and I knew the movie was getting towards the end, so I decided just to let it go. And when the movie ended, it turned out it was Edward Snowden's parents and. I was unspeakably relieved that I did not say anything because uh, what were they talking about? I couldn't hear, but it's, you know, it's movie theater talk, but it was like, you know, but, but louder and louder. Uh, And I would imagine that's our boy. That's our boy. Shh. It's a movie. They were (laughs) seeing uh, the first, I mean, his father, uh, I believe has visited him, but his mother, I think was seeing where he lives now in Russia for the first time. And, you know, I, you can only imagine what sort of things that she would want to have talked about with her husband at that point. It looks like a nice place. It I mean, doesn't look too nice bad. Although the way she shoots it, it's the way wood. Poitras shoots them cooking dinner in the one night when she finds them, uh, sort of echoes the, the voyeurism and the, and the sort of always being watched feeling that uh, his life is going to have for the foreseeable future. I, I'm surprised yeah. how much of a, a character study this movie is. Like, yes, it plays into that paranoia thriller history i mean the the pakula pakula movies like all the president's men obviously i'm gonna go with pakula yeah i was gonna say pakula pakula appreciate appreciate like tomato tomato whatever um but like it it, it obviously emulates those that genre history but what i loved about the movie was this middle chunk where yeah poitras just sat in a hotel room for eight days filming Edward Snowden talking them through um, the the disclosure of this these papers that he stole from the NSA. How was it going to go down? You know, he stressed, I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to be the narrative here. I want this information to be the story, not me, not me. Um, and yet here's a person filming him, kind of putting his story to rest, truly. Like, may, this movie had to happen if only to kind of um, squash the spin of Edward Snowden and like the and idea that he was working for Iran thinks or he's an asshole. What you're wait, is it about your mother thinking he's an asshole or is it about like the conspiracy theories about like him being an operative for North Korea or whatever? Well that, but also like this low level guy who thinks he's a martyr and thinks he's a hero and he's, you know, of, of this young age that would want to attack the government. And, and do you really feel like it clears that up? Yeah, I do for me. Uh, I, I mean, could I think not have been more, really ambivalent about the story um, when it happened, which I'm not necessarily proud of. It's just, there's a lot. I needed I needed something like this to put it into more explicitly human terms for, for me to really wrap my head around. Um, and I could not really have been, you know, the movie is, it's a flattering portrait of Snowden. It was always going to be, but I really couldn't have been more impressed by how 
uh, noble. He he appears. This veneer never really cracks. He is. He just feels so like I cannot work at the NSA anymore. Watching yeah. what we're creating here, I had to do this. Like I, he couldn't go on not breaking this. Story it's an incredible. People. You know, if if we're to believe what we see on screen, and really, I have no reason not to watching this movie. Uh, it's an incredible portrait of somebody having a crisis of conscience, and he has, you know, such. He's so devoted to his convictions that he can't help but do this. And you understand that he he doesn't – like, really, I believe, watching this movie, that he doesn't want the attention that comes with this, that he doesn't uh, want him to, himself to be the focus of the story. He had never spoken with the media before, and you get a sense that as brilliant Wait, as he is – Wait, before this documentary or before he met with Poitras and Greenwald? Before he met with them. Yeah, okay. Uh, and you, you He know, tried to, actually. He right. reached out to well, Poitras second, and Greenwald – First, and Greenwald deleted his email because he didn't know how to decrypt and thought it was spam or something, which is really funny to me because it's probably <laughs> what I would do if I got an encrypted email. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, I, you really get the sense that this he's just seeing something that is significantly wrong, that is affecting the entire world, that the American people and the world at large has been lied to, uh, that I think there's a lot of uh, residual effect of the the perceived failure of the Obama administration coming in on these promises of hope and transparency and uh, doing nothing but ramping up the surveillance efforts. And there's a bombshell revelation at the end, which is partially redacted, uh, that that in a series of sort of with the, with the details taken out, it's like just a series of empty boxes pointing up to the POTUS. Uh, but, you know, you, you definitely get the sense that that uh, it feels like more of a betrayal uh, happening under the Obama administration than it did with, under an administration that everyone had already, you know, deemed a failure. Uh, right. Yeah, but... there's a lot of juxtaposition between like the revelations of the information and people like NSA director Keith Alexander saying, "No, we will, we do not collect information from Google." Even that, like stuff she didn't film, stuff she collected from C-SPAN or whatever. Just seeing it all assembled and then right. having having Snowden there to be so pure and so noble and 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 be earnest about it too like wait okay these so people pure, are swindling when you country. say things like he is so pure and so noble it makes i mean i have not seen this documentary i don't know a ton about the case but like it feels like this is like kind of a hagiography like it's presenting him as this like completely faultless martyr which i don't think is fair to say about any li- like living human no if it, it doesn't if, if it was if it was um well lit and and a perfect talking head and like let's rush this this hero off to Hong Kong and interview him and put him up on a pedestal maybe but he's like he's such a failure in terms of other parts of his life right he didn't tell his girlfriend he was going to Hong Kong and and leaking these documents and never to be seen again he said he was sick while she was on vacation or something in Hawaii and he had to stay home and well, there was a chance make that they would never see each other again he just prioritized this in his I mean, mind, not, I should say. He, just... uh, he he feels guilt. He feels the weight of that. He oh, knows he's sure. ruining his life. It feels like the man's committed suicide or something. And he's standing yeah. in this room just feeling immense guilt. But, Katie, I'm curious as to your understanding of, of what happened and what he did, because it sounds like you uh, have a natural suspicion to him. And I did as well when I just no, saw I... this guy's face plastered all over the place. And I was like, you know, I didn't necessarily uh, know the ins and outs of what he did. And I'm sort of wary of anyone who gets that much attention. But he, I mean, he simply brought the truth to light 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have I have incredible respect for whistleblowers and like him. I believe in him as a whistleblower, but just the idea, like, I, what I, what interests me about this movie is being able to understand who he is as a human being and not like his importance to the world, which is obviously immense. Like, I understand like the Snowden files and the Snowden leaks, and like, I get, I get what that means. But him as a human being is what I'm interested to learn from this, and I'm I'm suspicious of the idea that I'm going to come out of anything about any person. Who is in the news being like he is a good and pure soul? Well, I, I, don't, I don't feel like anybody is, is like that. It's, it's the movie is partially a human drama, but it's really a lot more about using Snowden, uh, who who Poitras really doesn't care about. I mean, like Patches and I both interviewed her, and I don't know if he got the same impression that I did, but she he, she really only values Snowden for what he did and not who he is. Uh, and I, that by his really, request, I think. Yeah, exactly. And that's really reflected in the documentary where this, like, does he come off rather well? Yes, but it's not about him. The, the emphasis is completely on not making him look good, but on making the government look bad. Uh, and I mean, that and extent, that seems like fair it, and to the spirit of what he's doing. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm inter- I'm super interested to see it. It's going to be out next week, right? I don't know how. Is it only in theaters? Two weeks. Is it, it comes out in theaters October 24th, and then it will roll out into VOD, and then it's going to play on HBO next spring. And thanks to uh, the inevitable Oscar campaign and its and its uh, earned front runner status, you can you can ensure that you'll be hearing about it incessantly <laughs> between now and uh, I hope so. And next March, and you know what? That's not a bad thing. So. calling attention to the fact that uh well i i had a thought while watching the book of life the other morning which is a new animated film which is sort of uh the day of the dead version of the nightmare before christmas although a lot more hyperactive and uh aggressively charming uh but it's quite good actually uh, for what it is i enjoyed it a bit it's beautifully animated once it gets going uh and it occurred to me when when a studio product like this that doesn't really have any pedigree behind it that is produced by the toxic Guillermo del Toro. And this is the best thing he's touched Yikes. since, uh, since what is it? Hellboy two. Um, is this good? You know, I, I, it occurred to me that we're in really a phenomenal year for animation, which is, uh, I never something I never expect anymore. Um, and, uh, I don't think I, I should, uh, but with the tale of the princess Kaguya, the astoundingly good new studio Ghibli film opening, I believe also this Friday, uh, and the Lego Movie being so strong and big people heroes. like How to Train Your Dragon too. There are I completely forgot that was a movie, but sure. Um, and <laughs> you are just but overwhelmingly devastated by it. Absolutely adorable. Uh, Don Hertzfeldt's It's Such a Beautiful yes. Day came out on iTunes, which is a big deal. It did. Uh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, wow. yeah. Uh, just a few That's weeks awesome. ago, uh, the day that is after, an amazing film. It's an amazing film. It came out. It, it's been out for a few years technically, but it came out on iTunes about two days after his brilliant Simpsons couch gag, which really actually could be the best film of any kind I've seen this year. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Big Hero Six, uh, I've heard positive things about, and this is coming out uh, from Disney. And it's interesting that we're in such a terrific. And I feel like there's a lot I'm forgetting also, um, but. It's interesting that we are in such a phenomenal, seemingly phenomenal year for animation in the one year in recent memory where there hasn't been a Pixar movie. And uh, I, I call that a false correlation. I think you're probably right. Oh, speaking of correlation <laughs> and lines. Uh, Fox, Fox Trolls. Trolls. Also great. Fox Trolls. I thought you were going to work up to Planes, Fire, and Rescue there. No. <laughs> we, don't, we don't speak of that film in my house. Um, but... Uh, uh, yes, Katie, it is probably a false correlation, uh, but it is interesting that we, you know, while our hopes used to rest on Pixar, this is not hardly a new uh, you know, sort of revelation, but that now really we threw don't even up. need up. You, them. like, vomited on Twitter when you saw the, the preview for their new movie. Yeah, their new one. Inside I mean, I tr- I, if, if I'm going to trust any of the directors, I trust Pete Doctor, but uh, I hated absolutely everything about the trailer. All for- the feels, It's about yeah. feelings. It's literally about the feels. Amy Poehler the feels. Is, the, is the sensation of joy. I, no I wanted to die. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, None of the feels for David. I Well, because this movie was sold to me years ago, uh, not personally, but just sort of in general, as the, the story that just took place inside of the, the mind of a girl growing up. And I was like, you know, with Pete Doctor attached to that, I, I, my mind was sort of reeling as to all the interesting possibilities that could entail. And this is... You know, sight unseen, and we all Osmosis know how, Jones. How, uh, how much I hate prejudging Herman's things. head. Um, and so I will absolutely see this movie with an open mind as much as I can, but I, I was not particularly charmed by the trailer. No. Anyway, do you guys think this has been a good year for animation or a particularly good year? I've seen nothing but the Lego movies. So I recuse myself. Um, has, wait, can you just one or two sentences elaborate on the Lego movie? Is this movie as good as people no. think? Think no, it is. no, okay. it's not. I'm, I'm kind of agreeing. I don't want to be the downer podcast as we often are. It's pretty good, though. No, I mean, it's good, but it's not the second coming of whatever that people think it is. The female <laughs> characters fail the Lego Yes, movie. okay. That's a, or we'll, the Lego movie fails its female characters. We'll have that argument at some point later this year. What are the good <laughs> animated movies that I haven't seen that I should see? Fox Trolls. All the ones we lifted, listed. <laughs> All right, yeah. fine. I thought you guys were going to chime in with other suggestions. <laughs> but really, uh, anyway. Why don't you see them? And I'm sure we'll... I, because I I would like to see them. I would like I'd really like to see Fox Trolls. I'm sad that I missed that. Uh, although you know, and I think Patches might agree with me on this, and I suspect we'll talk about it in greater detail on a later episode. But I think really at the top of the pile, by a, a fair margin, is the uh, the tale of the Princess Kaguya. I would agree with you, and it's surprising because out of can, everyone was kind of so-so on it, or maybe no one went to actually see yeah, it. Yeah, I think and that's probably like more the case. The two or three voices that showed mm-hmm. up because they got rejected from something else were especially down that yeah. day. In everyone France. at can was was <laughs> sour on Certified Gopi and The Clouds of Souls Maria and all these other great, great movies. So I was whatever. weeping at the end of Princess Kaguya. This You're always big weeping. Set piece. I am. I appreciate <laughs> oh, weeping. Uh, <laughs> let's move on. Good, good talk. Wait, Joanna needs to chime uh, in on animation. No, no, no. I, I said Fox Trolls, which we've already talked about at great length. It was one of my favorite films of the year. And I did like the Lego movie. I don't think it's what everyone's building it up to be, but I did like it. And I am really excited uh, to see Book of the Dead because, I don't know, David has tempered my expectations a little bit, but um, 
it's based on a myth I really like. I think the art looks beautiful from the trailer, so I, I'm really excited for that. If you can and make it through the first uh, like five minutes or so, once the golden. movie really gets going, you're uh, you're in for a good time. I, okay. I saw quite a bit of the movie, and for me, the Book of Life had this interesting 3D, 2D thing going on. It's very much like illustrative more than other CG movies. Would you corroborate that? Uh, I yeah, I think so. I mean, it wasn't really one of the elements that really stood out for me. Um, I think that it does use a number of different animation forms in an interesting way, uh, especially as the movie goes on. There's a lot of like a lot of flashbacks and the sides, which are done in 2D, and which is always nice to see. Uh, but it's it's a a bright and and beautiful movie, and increasingly so as it goes on. I recently had my sister just complain at length about how terrible Frozen looks. Frozen is, and... the, is the, just yes, disgusting. Your sister's my new favorite person. It's yeah, disgusting. <laughs> it is a vile <laughs> abomination. I Big like Hero that 6, movie though. a lot, but it is not a good-looking movie. Box I think Big Hero 6 could look a lot better. I'm, I'm kind of excited for Big Hero 6. Like Having a character like Baymax, that big inflatable robot, lends it's really itself cute. to a lot of it's not those animation kittens. Stuff. Something about yeah. the name Big Hero 6 makes me... I kept thinking it was direct-to-DVD because that title is so generic. I mean, And it's a Marvel movie. It's very, it's odd, right? Big Hero yeah. 6, Fire and Rescue. Oh, it's a Marvel <laughs> movie? Not yeah, really. David's Not out. Really. David's out. <laughs> no, barely, barely. There's hope. Too late, Passage. You said the M word. David's running uh, away uh, as fast as he can. 1941. 1941. World War II had just begun. World War II had just begun. Fighting it was mighty rough. Fighting it was mighty rough. Nazi German was mighty tough. Nazi German was mighty tough. In the states a combat team. In the states a combat team. Being formed that was mighty mean. Uh, so for our segment three today, we we were going to talk about, well, in honor of Fury, we are going to be talking about World War II movies, but we were going to be talking about something very particular about Fury and then decided to table that at the last second because we think that it will be a large uh, focus of our review of Fury and we don't want to double up. So we are going to have a little bit more of a free-form discussion about World War II movies in general. Um, and the reason that I wanted to do that was because i've learned something about myself for the past few years as you grow into old age as i have begun to do uh you deteriorating you know, right, for you, uh, the eyes of your loved you, ones yeah you you begin to notice these things about yourself and i noticed two things uh one well hopefully more than this as well but one is that i'm a sucker for uh handsomely made costume dramas who knew merchant ivory uh, the new movie, uh, the three sisters, uh, the beloved sisters, rather. There was a niff, whatever. Put on a corset, make it three hours long, I'm in. Anyway, <laughs> um, the, the other thing uh, is that I really love World War II stories. And it doesn't matter to me what front they are or what element of World War II they explore because I love World War II stories so much explicitly because they seem to be an infinite variety of them apparently when you were in a world war it happens to involve the world and uh, i know and i recently made this connection and there are uh so many in, in so many different continents and countries and places so many different 
lives that were happening concurrently, uh, all of whom had very dramatic, well, not all of them, but so many of whom were rich sources for and scenarios for fiction movies and nonfiction movies, biopics, documentaries, whatever the case might be. You can go from, from, uh, oh man, I just blanked on pretty much all my favorite World War II movies. But you can then go Red from, Line. Fine. I was going to say The Monuments Men, which I haven't seen. And I don't think I would. <laughs> I, 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 what? I Deeply but, bad. Yeah, that is the first hang World on. War II movie you think of. Well, well, what? Ha- hang on. Uh, I, I haven't seen The Monuments Men, nor do I think that I would necessarily like it. Yeah, don't like ever. It. However, uh, I, I just to illustrate how vast uh, the spectrum can be, you can go from Monuments Men uh indiana jones to schindler's list and uh war horse no war horse horse is world war one oh sorry Uh, and and even fury which i didn't like very much but you can do and that is a terrible uh terrible small selection of titles but really uh i think that uh encompasses about the last 10 years of Uh, right okay stalag 17 uh but but really yeah no whatever i mean going from from uh to be or not to be or like you know any all these movies you know what they are you don't need me to have a laundry list of what great world war ii movies are um, no they do need you to do this uh, well, i just like that the segment started with like david like really really loves world war ii movies I, and do, he, uh, he has only Ehrlich not seen much the one i haven't seen david Ehrlich also has a terrible memory no wait a second draw a line in the sand here because do you love world war ii <laughs> movies do you love the war movies or do you i mean i think holocaust dramas are a different Ooh, I, category I than anything, the world war ii movies. i love anything more or less you know of course uh subjected to of critical gaze but i i am I'm, I'm partial to anything that takes place in the period of world war ii it does not have to and often doesn't necessarily involve fighting i think it even i'm gonna say it's broad enough to include even the period immediately following the war and we see this in uh i, I like to see the japanese films that grapple with that a lot of so there are the post-world war ii japanese cinema is are you a best one of the years richest. of our lives fan? best years yeah, of our lives is amazing so best years of my lives. that's one of my I favorite to see movies the german period. films that that occurred and even the german even the films we make now of course that look back to that period like phoenix which was just at the toronto international film festival and it's a is a really terrific movie um that is set in germany in the years after world war ii um you know there there are so many of them. Uh, I tend actually to respond less, I'd say, to the more traditional World War II movies like The, the Great Escape and Bridge Too Far and that sort of thing. Although, when it comes to Men on a Mission, Men on a Mission movies, uh, <laughs> that, that there is a particular mission, if we're really going to narrow down my fetish here, like the great Clint Eastwood movie uh, where, he, where eagles dare, where they storm a Nazi castle on top of a mountain. Uh, it's like pornographic. I, you know, go back to genre noir and the Grand Illusion, which is the first film in the Criterion Collection and one of the first I saw. And, Wait, uh, are you thinking of Kelly's Heroes? What movie did you just? Oh, actually, uh, the Grand Illusion, which was made in '39, that's actually about World War. Kelly's one. Heroes um, is the Clint no, Eastwood I'm, I'm not goes steals no, I'm not Nazi gold. about where eagles dare, my friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you would How like the you? Monuments Men because they are on a mission—a mission to save art. Um, but no, there are, uh, rather than have the segment just be me listing or failing horribly to list World War II movies that I like, uh, I All right, I got a, I got Well, I have a bone to pick with World War II movies that I'd like to, or, yeah, okay, well, you're, you're welcome to do that. We'll have plenty of time, I think. But, um, I wanted to, I, there, it's not just like everybody like me who, who has maybe a certain romanticism for this absolutely terrible 
time when strife uh, ruled the planet even more, I don't, you know, in, in more broader historical terms it does now. But uh, uh, we keep making World War II movies, and we keep making World War II movies at various times. And, and I'm wondering if it's simply because, uh, like I said, there's such a, a rich vein of stories that, um, you know, it seems to be no end to the, the variety of them, or... Uh, are they trending towards one particular kind of World War II movie? Why does a movie like Fury exist and get greenlit? What, what is it about that when there are so many other wars that we've had, unfortunately, since well, I, then? What is it about World War II that has a special appeal for people nostalgically? I think that Fury comes at a time we, we've been in a dry spell of the Man on a Mission movies, right? Except I mean, for Monuments Men. <laughs> Monuments Men isn't really a man on a mission movie. I guess it is, but they're not really like going and fighting. It's not about war. It's about being on the fringes of war, getting the art right. And in Glorious no, like, Bastards, they, also they die well, in Monuments Men. They go <laughs> they under die. fire. Well, they're obviously gonna <laughs> die, but they're going after art. That's not like the machismo of. Uh, Wait, that's that's what I'm really talking about here. This kind of like what? Yeah, some the of the Monuments, Monuments Men, men die. Spoiler. Yeah, some of them do. Damn. There's there's a certain level of machismo that's about you know like How the guns dare you, of Navarone sir? and <laughs> I'm sorry it's true it's about like manly men going off to war and I'm not saying that's like something we need in 2014 but there's a void to fill in 2014 with that and Fury kind of comes at, at a time when we, we, yeah we're getting none of that uh, and it's not entirely successful we'll get into that uh, later this week perhaps but uh, I'm always amazed by these movies that came only a sh few short years after the war ended that were really about our success there. And I think that's why there's been so much room to keep making World War II movies, right? Uh, we can be, we can champion our heroes a few short years after, and then 50 years later, 60, 70 years later, we could we'll be able to talk about why the nuance of this war, the complications, the moral gray zone of world war ii and that's why these movies will stand the test of time and like you said it takes place all over the world there's endless amounts of although a quick shout out to uh, a great book that maybe this is the reason why i've sort of lately been thinking about this for the past few months uh by richard harris mark harris mark, mark richard harris is dumbledore right. mark Thank harris you. wrote a book about uh, world war ii i think that is awesome mark, mark harris's <laughs> book five came back which is about uh, five filmmakers during World War II, we may have actually talked about it on a previous... I think I talked about it when I read okay. it. It's, it's so, an amazing book. Yeah, great book. Um, um, yeah. Patches, you were talking about the morality of the war, which is what blows my mind so much about Best Years of Our Lives, which was made in 1945, I think, 1946. I mean, it's right after the war, and it's about PTSD, and it's about all these things that we didn't have a name for at the time, which is kind of the incredible result of these people going to war, as described in Five Came Back. But I think the bone I wanted to pick with World War II, especially as it relates to more current movies like Fury, is that it's kind of an easy moral war for a lot of filmmakers to address, at least in the way that you know Pearl Harbor or Fury or something like that addresses, where it's like Nazis are bad, Americans are good, we are fighting on the side of the right, and therefore we can do a lot of things that you can't do in a Vietnam movie or in a Spanish-American war movie or any war in which it's not like commonly assumed like well we know who the good guys were and we know who the bad guys were which is a crazy thing to say about basically any war except the way world war ii is treated on film 
And like, obviously you get things like the thin red line that are exceptions and saving private Ryan does a lot of interesting things, but I'm kind of worn out by the fact that we're still making so many world war two movies only because it seems like the easy way to go in a lot of ways. You want more World War II movies that sympathize with the Nazis. What was really no, going on there? I want wars about other. I want movies about other wars in which it was a little less, compli- a little more complicated to learn. Like I've been listening to a podcast recently about World War One and about how incredibly complicated that war is and why it's so hard to understand why it happened and how nobody really wanted to be there. And that's a much more depressing and then you know maybe more morally interesting war to make a movie about. And maybe we should be challenging ourselves well, and doing that. That's why I think Letters from Iwo Jima is such a successful movie and probably the only good thing that Clint Eastwood has made in the last decade. Um, just doing that. I mean, I don't know if I've ever even seen Flags from Her Fathers or whatever the companion film, the one yeah. that came Flags out first. The one that everyone was like, this is an Oscar contender, and no one was paying attention to Letters from Iwo Jima, and then all of a sudden that's the one that gets best picture. Um, but that, that movie's phenomenal. Just a Japanese film about that side of the war, that perspective of this battle. I mean... Why would anyone with Hollywood money make this movie? And yet there it is. And it was the time away from the war that allowed us to do that. I mean, it still seems like people are ready to go there and explore these parts of the war. It just took more time, right? Because the the pressure against, I mean, people were making, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, as you said, the Nazis were the evilest of evil. How can you possibly explore that side of things? Yeah, no, Katie makes a fantastic point, I think. But I, I also think... World War II movies is, as we've determined in the segment, is such a broad category that I think what David did, which is narrow in on his particular fetish of World War II movie, like what kind of World War II movie is your thing, uh, I think is is interesting to to. Address. What's your kind of World War II? My movie? kind of World War. Thank you for asking. Um, I was just thinking about it while you were talking about it. I really like movies set in Germany. Uh, that show people who were not sympathetic to Nazis. And I can only think of stupid examples like Swing Kids um, <laughs> and, and The Book Thief. But The Book Thief was a really good book and not a great movie. But anyway, I just I think that's a good answer to Katie's problem, which is trying to see, or, or as you said, uh, Letters from Iwo Jima, trying to see the war from the antagonist's point of view. Was lore like that? Do you remember? Lore? I'm trying to remember yeah, lore. Uh, uh, like what? There you well, that <laughs> that that explored Germany at the time and and people who were yeah. resistant to the Nazi movement. I'm trying to remember. Lore is this movie, this German film that came out in 2012, uh, and I'm just trying to remember the details. I think it's about young girls running through Nazi Germany, and they are German. And they, they are German. Oh, I know not, which movie you're talking comply. about. Yeah, uh, it's phenomenal. It's on Netflix, I believe. If you want to watch that one. Yeah, I mean, there's like, there's a ton of different angles like that to be explored. But then there's like, I mean, there's just, there's atrocities and wars and things we know nothing about. Like in America, we know nothing about Pol Pot. Like someone who did horrendous. Yeah, like Pol Pot's the guy who uh, sang on Enchance? whatever the. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Out now on Yahoo? Everyone go see One Chance on Yahoo. No, there, there's all these amazing historical things that have happened throughout history. Like I saw a documentary about the rape of Nanking, I think called the rape of Nanking. Um, with all these conflicts going on between China and Japan that surrounded World War II. Like, I mean, I guess I'm complaining about the American movie, like Hollywood version of World War II, which is what we've been seeing a lot of. There, It's just such a limited scope. And David's point about how it expands so wide is a really good point. Like, you know, my grandfather served in World War II in Panama, which would, no one would ever think about. But, 
I wonder if maybe we should just move on to a different war with different stakes just to move have a on, different version. <laughs> yeah, everyone forget about World War II. It's over. We've passed it. Just like there's so many stories to tell and so many war stories to tell. And I feel like World War II is. Yeah, but the problem is there aren't many wars where America is the hero. Well, exactly. No, and there's what, very few. And that's what Katie's saying is like this is one of the in, – in this day and age, this is one of the last remaining genres where we can be – super patriotic where we can have i mean monuments men was not a good movie but you know they do feel like they can get away with scenes where the american flag is just waving proudly right you're gonna have a marvel superhero clobbering nazis in a movie (laughs) yeah i mean i love the first captain america and he's fighting nazis and like that's part of the fun of it but it's that's why indiana jones works so well but yeah here's my Response to Katie, and I'm not sure how much I... Response to my World War II denial. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of playing the devil's advocate. I'm not sure how much. But I think when you focus... On, what's convenient about World War II is precisely the uh, the dichotomy between good and evil, as, as history has uh, made it pretty clear. Because I think when you, when you tell a story that is set um, in, in a different war, and you know, if you're Terrence Malick, and you're, even if you're telling a story uh, during World War II... The moral ambiguity becomes a, a bit of a suffocating focus. It's hard to tell these stories in a way that if you if you deviate from having it be a portrait about moral ambiguity, it becomes uh, jingoistic and one-sided and in a way that uh, World War II forgives. And I actually, um, you know, as even as a, a descendant of a Holocaust survivor and somebody with whom there, from, like, there were many, many victims in my family, I prefer my movies my world war ii movies if they're not going to be about clint eastwood just killing nazi henchmen henchmen to to allow for the possibility of uh, the complexity that um becomes all the more interesting amongst the german populace because of how vilified the war effort has made them and i think that um it's it's it can be limiting in uh it limits the kind of stories you can tell often oftentimes if you see the Vietnam War or the Korean War or whatever the case might be. So I think that the the historical uh, consensus on World War II about the people involved and not just that, you know, like as it is in the Vietnam War, that it was a mistake to be there. Um, I think that allows it wiggle room that some of the other wars lack. At no, least in I get, cases. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people really use that straightforwardness to tell really great stories about World War II, and I do not deny those whatsoever. I think those are fascinating things. But I think, I mean, again, like to think about World War One, where like everyone just after the fact said it was Germany's fault when it was a lot less clear cut than that. Like that stuff is really fascinating, and that's a really fascinating angle to take on war, which is this universal human experience that as moviegoers we tend to see through the World War II lens because that's what most American war movies have been about and maybe that's a dangerous way to think about war. Do, do you feel like war can't be entertaining to you anymore? Is no, not at all. Where, okay, I'm curious. I'm just thinking about movies. I watched um, some of Midway the other day and I watched... The John the- Ford documentary? No, uh, no, it's a Jack Smith film. Oh. And I also watched um, The Longest Day, which has these just crazy battle scenes. And you, you can be in awe of all the, like, war mayhem. And Absolutely. And obviously it dawns on you that, yes, this took place and this is horrific, but there's some sort of awe to what they kind of pull off, especially in these older films where they're recreating everything with uh, not just detail, but with the mass, you know, the scope. And 
but I'm also um, I'm kind of battling my own my own fear that I'm like taking enjoyment in something horrific. Uh, well, think about Lawrence of Arabia, where you know you go through all this heroic war stuff, and then you get to a point where it takes its toll on him, and you see the ambiguity he feels about it. And it's a great war movie; like it kind of is able to do both because it's about a different conflict that has much clearer, like much less clear cut objectives. I like bed knobs and broomsticks. <laughs> yes, Home Two movie. Yes, yes. She Is brings it? the she brings the museum. Yeah, armor and they to fight life. the Nazis. Yeah, fight I like. Nazis. Oh my I god! Really like Homefront movies. Okay, everyone. Uh, like what's what your else? favorite favorite World War Two movie that has nothing to do with World War Two? <laughs> no, but that's it does. A, they fight the Nazis. No, no okay, that 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 has nothing to do with war. I'm it's I'm, a great I'm trying to think of of movies. Uh, you know what's not my favorite is the Majestic, which was on TV earlier today to punish kids <laughs> staying home from school on Columbus Day. Oh, that's uh, not a bad movie. It's a pretty bad movie. Uh, I but I think all of my uh, I, there are a lot of great. I, I as I mentioned earlier, a lot of great. Uh, Post and and well, less during the war Japanese films, um, but there are a lot of films, particularly like the Mikio Naruse films, that focus on the women and and what their roles were around that time uh, that I find really really interesting. That's a during that's a during World War Two movie. Well, there mo- a lot of them were made after, but reflected right. back at the during. Um, I think you know, you're a shout out to, to Grave find... of the Fireflies. Yeah, Grave of the Fireflies. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, most of uh, as as five came back to tales. Uh, certainly in the Western side of things, most of our best filmmakers were a little bit too busy shooting the war um, or, you know, making, making, you know, they're, 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 to, to really make a lot of their, their masterpieces during that time, preparing to make films like uh, um, uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. I uh, I can't remember if Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt is a World War II movie, like it was filmed during World War II, and the uncle, who Uncle Charlie, is a uh, yes. you know, military age. But yeah. for some reason, that feels like a home front World War II movie to me. So I'm gonna say that one. Yeah, Mrs. Miniver, I think, is the sort of iconic. That yeah, came out in 1942, and that kicked off a sort of fascination with me for home front movies and Liberty Gardens and all that sort of things. So. Well, I read. Uh, did you read? Did you read the American Girl books? Yeah. 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 Oh man. Yeah. Molly. Molly. Molly had the Victory Garden. That was a. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I. Sorry, boys, you never got to learn about <laughs> World War II the way that we did. My sister played with the Molly doll. <laughs> yeah, Molly had glasses and I had glasses, so we had a lot in common. <laughs> I know their names. Yeah? No, name another one. Um, oh, Felicity. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> I know the American Girl dolls. And, oh, a uh, doll like you. Looks like you, doll. Yeah, that that came later. Uh, next week we'll be talking about American Revolution Wars to uh, or, or movies to commemorate Felicity, the American Girl. So uh, that's that all. Fuck happens in this segment. <laughs> Actually, if we could wrap up here, but I, I'm curious. Like you mentioned, oh, there should be more wars, but I'm, why can't American Revolution, Civil War? These all seem viable. Vietnam seems like the one war you can't really delve into in like yeah, the way and, like, that we I have feel like, with World War Two. And but. I feel like baby boomers have had enough movies about their generation like vietnam's okay i mean obviously i think we obviously need more iraq and afghanistan maybe nothing movies. interesting happened because they were all all our wars you know american and civil were both here and no one cares about the small skirmishes that were happening across the globe unless we were involved so world war ii is just brings everyone together oh and you know everything you know what i want to see i want to see one is it the spanish american war with the rough riders and teddy roosevelt i um, think so but Robin I Williams s- is not alive to play to control. I want. 
I want to see the Teddy Roosevelt on a horse uh, charging up a hill in Cuba movie because, good Lord, who doesn't want to see that? <laughs> Why do you think the Pacific didn't do well, as well as Band of Brothers, not to take it out of film entirely? Because but... <laughs> it wasn't as good. Okay. Uh, well, I think, you know, in, in broad... Tr- I actually stopped watching the Pacific after five episodes, and been, I really love Band of Brothers, but I think Band of Brothers uh, so strongly aligns with people, with, like, the general idea of what world war ii is and looked like or wasn't looked like um it, it has that well saving that private scheme. ryan helped right of course yeah no and it furthered that and helped cement it uh for for people it's really formative work in the pacific with uh you know obviously taking place in a completely different theater and just being like a little bit there's a reason that you know the war was so focused and centralized uh in in europe where bent brothers takes place and pacific there's different rhythms to it i should know i was there of course uh yes but you know pacific uh, felt like that part of um saved by the bell where they all had that beach job working at the beach resort you know yeah it's not the same being back i'm sure that's 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 how they felt fighting that war too that normandy charm you know it felt it felt like a beach resort for the people who had the batanda what's the tropical diseases i miss the freezing to death episodes i like i like the third episode where he just has sex with this Australian chick the entire time. Yeah. Of Saved by the Bell? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I saw that one, actually. I'd watched very little of the Pacific, but I did see that one. Okay, World War II. Send us your thoughts and your favorite war and home front movies, and go read Five Came Back. It's great. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to review Fury, as you might have guessed from what we discussed. I'm also about to tweet out the picture of Matt Patches with his cat that is in the document we're all reading from because oh, no. I feel like the world needs to see this. <laughs> I uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I'm not currently holding my cat. I am on writing all across the internet, all over the place, putting everything on mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And remember, uh, each week we post these episodes to our website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can tweet them out, you can comment, you can leave nasty messages, you can leave positive messages, all feedback. We look at it, we digest it, fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. You can also find my work on the Dissolve Complex, the AP Club. Uh, and uh, today, if you're hearing this, uh, on the playlist. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich, at the Criterion Corner. You can find all of us at Facebook, on Facebook, the Facebook, uh, at Fighting in the World. My name is Joanna Robinson. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find me most days on VanityFair.com. I also do a podcast about television called The Station Agents. I do a podcast called Public City Dispatch. And last week, I cheated on Fighting the Worm with Slash Filmcast. But talk about Gone Girls. So you can listen to that if you missed my stellar insights into that film. Uh, if not... You can also just give us a call, 914-410-6450. And you may notice something different on that phone number today. Don't congratulate me. It was a small Don't worry about it. Uh, and please record your congratulations for Katie Rich for her amazing accomplishments. <laughs> uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can also find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. You can also find us, all the podcasts on Twitter at FITWR, where you can see pictures of Matt Patches and his cat, and also answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Birdman, what is the, your favorite movie about the theater? 
Thank you for listening, and we'll be back in a tank talking to you on Friday.